0: This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. If you're looking to take your investing to the next level, Premium has you covered. Try it free at yahoofinance.com slash premium.
1: I first got to know Sukinder decades ago, and this was when there were very few women in Silicon Valley at her level, and she was really succeeding, so she really stood out. In a way, Sukinder hasn't changed at all. I mean, you can see she's very high-energy, Super smart, um, someone who is very strategic, always thinking about the business, you know, not just going through the motions by any means. I think Sukinder has really brought a consumer mindset to kind of all the businesses that she's been involved in. She's done startups. She's worked at Google, where she did maps. She worked at Amazon, where she worked on Marketplace. And now, you know, she's at a huge consumer brand, StubHub. So she's very good at thinking about consumer and technology in that intersection. Our guest, Sukinder Singh Cassidy, who is the president of StubHub. Sukinder, great to see you.
2: Good to see you again.
1: Um, so there's so much to talk about.
2: <laughs> your job,
1: your career, your company. Mm-hmm. But I have to ask you, because you've worked in big tech yep. for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. And, of course, big tech is in the spotlight right now, in the yep. crosshairs of Washington. Um do you think that big tech is a problem mm-hmm. and the problem is something that Washington needs to address?
2: Well, I think um, as opposed to whether Washington needs to address it or not, kind of let's talk about the three characteristics of big tech that are relevant right now. Number one, continue to be innovators and nobody, no one would debate the need for innovation, let's hope, right? right. Uh, but I think in the crosshairs of big tech is user privacy and use of data. And is that an issue that needs to be forefront for everyone For sure, right? I mean, uh, I as a consumer, you as a consumer, we would all say, hey, we want to have control over what's done with our data. And so I think it's appropriate that we're taking a look at that issue. Um, Other big issue in big tech right now is antitrust, right? And I would say, generally speaking, kind of at StubHub, at eBay, we believe in sort of democratic platforms, but platforms in which we don't set ourselves up to compete with our customers. And when I look at big tech, I think one of the things that I think about in the antitrust realm is the fact that many of the big tech companies are both um, providers of services to companies like mine, but, quite frankly, have the risk of using my, our data, to build competitive services. And so I do think that the focus on sort of platforms that both control access to users, not only have access to user information, but they sort of are a platform for many other companies to do business, yet at the same time, you know, are a threat of using that data uh, to to compete with kind of the companies they serve. So one of the things I think about is um, how to make sure that the platforms both can do good in the world, but A, be mindful of customer data and privacy. And number two, think about, you know, that construct between being a platform for other companies to thrive, uh, but being very careful on making sure that um, they they don't use their unique advantage in being the platform for other companies uh, to, in fact, set themselves up to compete with their customers.
1: So if there are these issues, though, Sir Kinder, how are they going to be resolved? I mean, is it the place for Washington to step in? I mean, the tech companies say we can self-regulate. That probably isn't working right now. Yep. I would think?
2: say a couple of things. I think that, you know, people often go to sort of regulation and self-regulate, and I think there is a path in between, which is monitor, right. <laughs> uh, be aware, be educated, you know. And I think, does the government have a role to play in making sure that there are uh, policies, user education, and they themselves are monitoring? Yes. Um, do I think that we need to mandate sort of regulation right now? That's not clear to me. What is clear is that attention needs to be paid, and I don't think you can just trust that these things will kind of unfold as they should through pure self-regulation. I mean, by the way, I'd say the same thing about boards, right? You can just say, hey, everybody should do the right thing, uh, but people, although well-intended, you know, doesn't always just flow that way. Right. So um, I'm not sure I would go to the extreme of everybody needs to be regulated, but I am in favor of monitoring and advocacy uh, work that the, go- that the government
1: and eBay, you mentioned the owner of StubHub, your yep. company. Um, they're a platform, too. Yep. You obviously have customer data because Absolutely. people log in. Yes, of course. Um, but you don't use the data the same way that some of the other platforms do? Well, I
2: think you're kind of hitting uh, a couple key things. First of all, I think every customer in the world is trusting us to be good stewards of their data. And, you know, a commerce company is not different from an advertising company in that regard. But what is different is... The business model involves the taking of customer information. I mean, people know they're giving me their information when they buy a ticket, right? Yeah. They, and they're trusting me to be stewards of their address, you know, their credit card information, yeah. right? We have a lot of trust and safety that we take. But I think there is something about commerce where it's very visible what information you are giving in order to enable a transaction. I think one of the reasons that platform companies that are in the advertising space um, seem more... Uh, hard to grasp because the user isn't clear what data is being collected and for what purpose. Um, and so I think there's a beauty to commerce, which is sort of, it's pretty clear why you're, you know, why and for what purpose you collect data. Regardless, I think we all have a responsibility uh, to be good stewards of the data we collect.
1: I want to get back to um, StubHub a little bit later, but first I want to ask you about um the digital revolution and maybe income inequality that perhaps comes from that. I mean, yes. you live in Silicon yes. Valley. I just came back from it, and the, there's a real haves and have-nots. Yes. And people driving Teslas, and then there's homeless people sleeping under the highway underpasses. And so, what what was the cause of that, and how can that be addressed? Does Silicon Valley play a role there?
2: Yeah, well, for sure, Silicon Valley has a role to play because I think, as as we pointed out, right, you can't sort of uh, talk about being the promoter of innovation without also thinking about the repercussions, right? And as we know, the income inequality divide is getting bigger, not smaller. Uh, So does uh, big tech have a role to play? Absolutely. And I think, look, there are some some good examples to look at. Let's look at Mark Benioff in Salesforce and his advocation, right, for big tech paying their fair share in order to help solve the homelessness problem. Like, there's some examples of what good might look like. Um, I think we would agree that's not universally true. Uh, and that is, for sure, a responsibility of uh, of big tech as well.
1: And just drifting into the political realm a little oh bit, so kind no. of in your favorite. <laughs> um, what about proposals by some of the people running for president on the Democratic side, for instance, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie yes. Sanders and AOC, saying it's got to tax the rich, and the rich are immoral.
2: Yeah. Look, I mean. Uh, I am for sure a capitalist who believes that innovation comes from open markets, right? Open markets doesn't mean you're absolute responsibility, but it also doesn't mean that, you know, uh, the solve to all of these things is a universal tax. I mean, I think we want to do things that promote innovation, and I think we want to be responsible stewards. And I will always walk sort of that line.
1: Another topic, um, women in tech. You are one of the few high profile women leaders in the space. Um, and people are saying it's terrible. It's, there's no progress. There's little progress. Is that really the case?
2: Uh, you know, it's interesting because, um, I'm a pragmatic optimist, uh, but I've learned to be a realist. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, I think you, you and I met many, many years ago. I've been Mm -hmm. in the Valley for 20 years, and largely speaking, I believe it has been one of the more meritocratic places for me to be, right? I arrived as a 27-year-old with no business running anything, let alone a company, and, you know, got the opportunity to start uh, one and then several, um, and also got, you know, opportunities to be at some of 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 the great companies in the Valley. So on the one hand, I believe that if you want to sort of – take control of your destiny, there is less hierarchy, there is the opportunity to be measured by what you do. All of that is true. It can also be true that the opportunity to take advantage of all of the talent, potential, in women is not being realized. Um, And we see that in places where, uh, quite frankly... um, in the absence of sort of, you know, where we, where we see a system of meritocracy still being subject to unconscious bias. That's what I would put it, right? It doesn't mean that if you're in a meritocratic system that there isn't still the opportunity for gender bias, unconscious bias, bias in funding, and all of these things. So on the one hand, if you say, has it progressed over the last 20 years? I would say yes. I'd say when I first started a company, Yodely, in 1999, I think it was 1999, I couldn't find another female founder anywhere, right? Ago. 20 years ago. And we look at it today, and we look at not only the female founders, the female founders running Unicorns. I mean, Rent the Runway, Stitch Fix, uh, The Real Wheel, which Mm is just filed for IPO, Eventbrite, House, like. I mean, yeah. you know, like unicorns that have been started and funded and founded by women. And so, and then we look at the state of kind of women in venture capital, right? And We can see progress as, as women are not just partners at firms, but they're running firms. Teresa Ra- uh, Teresa Gao or mm-hmm. Aileen Lee, uh, the women at Freestyle Capital. I mean, I could go on. So you could say on an, on an absolute basis there's progress. On right. a relative basis, the numbers are still freaking tiny. Right. And that's why people, I think, are uh, continue to be discouraged. My own point of view is we progress. We need to accelerate progress. And the place I think there's the most opportunity are some of the areas I'm passionate about. Um, number one, uh, women in every part of a company's ecosystem, not just as kind of women in STEM, which is the often kind of used narrative for women in tech. You know, I care about women in the boardroom. I care about, you know, building diverse pipelines. I care about sort of dispelling the myth that today not there isn't enough talent. Um, and then I think we think about, I think a lot about policies that make it more possible for women to stay in at the middle part of their career.
1: Is the board list, um, does that endeavor speak to this problem?
2: For sure it does, because right. I think it- this is, I, And
1: talk about what yes, the board uh, list is. Yeah, and I'll
2: talk about uh, what it is in a moment. It speaks to it because it's a technology solution designed to help solve the gender gap for very real business issues in the boardroom, right? Um, and I, I say it's indicative of this because I think the board list sort of recognizes there's a problem- but on the other hand, like the platform itself is sort of a platform of possibility, right? It sort of says these people are out there. You just need to find, uh, you know, have a good way to surface the the great talent that exists. that should be in the boardroom. So, the board list is a platform I started in two thousand fifteen. Uh, think of it as LinkedIn for boards. Uh, it uh, is designed to be a place where great uh, diverse talent is both nominated uh, by experienced CEOs and board members for the boardroom. And then companies that are looking for diverse talent go to the board list to find a great board member. Uh, and it is a platform that was started in Silicon Valley but has now gone far beyond tech. Uh, you know, we serve uh, companies large and small in every industry. Um, we, we serve sort of uh, searches for digital and non-digital board members. And we think we're good breeding ground for companies starting earlier in the diversity uh, search and putting women on their boards earlier, and putting diversity on their boards much earlier in their life cycle, which and is you're an still important involved phenomenon.
1: in this with your full time job.
2: <laughs> I'm not yeah. the CEO. Okay, I was never right, the CEO, okay. but I'm the founder and chairman. Right.
1: So, so talk to us about StoveHub. You came about a year ago. To about a year president. ago. Yeah. Why'd you take the job? What are you looking to do? What have you accomplished? What do you still need to do?
2: Oh gosh, all oh, great questions. So, uh, why'd I go? Um, first of all. I you know you know I'm a consumer internet junkie, yeah. uh, and I spent the majority of my career at consumer internet companies. Uh, but uh, I would say at this stage of my career, where I work or what I work on is as important as sort of just being involved in innovation. And so when I was looking at my next gig after starting Joyous in the board list, I was really looking for a platform that gives people joy at scale. Hmm. Uh, So, like, lives in the want economy uh, as opposed to the needs economy. That sort of was one kind of characteristic for me. Number two, global. Uh, Number three, a sector that's growing, right? And number four, kind of a place where I felt like a combination of maybe scale and entrepreneurial mindset was maybe the unique combination that any platform I would go to needed at that point in its history. And so you look at StubHub and you're like, global? Yes, right. we serve 44 countries, you know, 100 million visitors a year. Um, need versus want economy, we're squarely in the want economy. Um, and in a sector that's growing, live experiences is where not just millennials, but even you and I are spending more amounts of our income, so growing category. Um, Give people joy. Mm, yeah, that's our mission <laughs> every day. So it's a good reason to get up and go to work. And at this point in my life, unfortunately, I'm old enough where, like, that really matters. So i not just innovation for innovation's sake. Um, and the combination of scale and hustle, that probably comes to sort of your next question, which is what have I done while I'm there? Yeah, on the one hand, StubHub is a 19-year-old business, which is hard to imagine, But in a sector that's growing, um, that quite frankly has faced a lot of increased competition and innovation in the last few years. So StubHub has always been sort of the pioneer for the customer, but what does that mean today, right? Right. And so when I think about what, where I've spent my time over the past year at StubHub, it's been probably in four key areas. Um, some, uh, I think they're all focused on growth, but in different ways. Number one, uh, think about the leadership that we need in this next generation of the company and how do we think about innovation at scale and globally. So I've changed out almost half, more than half my executive team. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, areas of growth and opportunity, international. I ran international with Google and for StubHub, uh, live experiences internationally is a even uh, faster growing market than it is in the U.S. Uh, you can think of everything from the kind of traveling customer. I mean, we're seeing more than ever NBA games abroad, you know, Chinese customers traveling all over the world to have unique experiences with incredible disposable income. Um, international just re- represents a whole new growth area uh, for StubHub. So that's been the second area of focus for me. Number one, doubling down on the core business. The reality is, is that, as we talked about, the landscape and ticketing continues to evolve. And so just lots of efforts to sort of innovate at the core. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, culture and purpose. Um, And I mean, it's one of the things we'll talk about today. How do you kind of take the same kind of joyful experience we try to give customers and create a next generation culture at StubHub where people get up every day excited to innovate because they're there for sort of the why of their job? And so um, those have been the four areas that I'm focused on.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. Are you ready to take your investing to the next level? With premium features, advanced data, and a sophisticated new way to stand top of your portfolio, you can trade with complete confidence. Because it's more than just your portfolio, right? It's your money. Yahoo Finance Premium lets you trade up using tools that help you go beyond the fundamentals with industry-leading insights and detailed company profiles. You can trade up to advanced portfolio tools that help you monitor allocation, diversification, and risk. You'll discover new opportunities with detailed research reports and investment ideas that are updated every single day. So are you ready to trade up? Try it free today at yahoofinance.com premium. Now,
1: the company's not without some controversy. I mean, first of all, you have an activist investor, Elliott Management, who's coming in rattling your cage. So I want to ask you about that. And then also... You know, this whole independent ticket brokers thing yep. and then the state and federal laws that people yep. say is being arbitraged. Mm-hmm. So I want you to address both those things. First of all, what's going on with Elliot Management? They want it to be spun out of the company, they want board members, all that. You guys, the company's responded to an extent. Yes, yeah, so, so to
2: be so to be fair, um, Elliott Management is an active investor in eBay, which is our parent company, yes. and has made made a number of public recommendations uh, to eBay, including a strategic review of its portfolio, which includes StubHub. That's going on right now. Um, they also joined the board, um, and I think came to agreement with eBay on the actions eBay would take. Um, and so I think it's been constructive, and it's ongoing. So strategic Is the company review ongoing. Going to be spun off. Uh, no answer, no mm-hmm. conclusion, nothing to share right okay. now. Uh, but an agreement that eBay would do a strategic review um, in terms of where we sit in the ecosystem. Look, I think that. Uh, people love to look at ticketing as this controversial thing. And obviously when StubHub started, it was. Let's be super clear. Our brand is built on a fan-first mentality, right? And that means several things. Number one, um, it means that fans want access. At the end of the day, fans want to be able to go to an event when they want, how they want, the way they want, on their mobile phone, have a ticket that's safe and secure, um, and they want last-minute access. So this idea that the kind of a resale market for ticketing is going to go away, I'm like, mm. what we see more than ever is, I mean, are you going to sit, like, are you going to leave this meeting right now and go sit at your computer and wait for an on-sale so that you can get a ticket the minute it's posted? No, you're going to make the decision to go to an event probably today for tomorrow or for next week, and you want access, right? And so our, our job is to provide a safe and trusted marketplace for that. I think when we talk about our second responsibility consumer, it's uh, making sure that's a safe and trusted experience, which includes working with sellers on policies that you know are transparent, making sure that uh, tickets get fulfilled. By the way, it includes working with regulators, as we do in many markets, including here in New York, on making sure that fans always have access. We were uh, kind of a big proponent of the paperless ticket law that you know passed here in New mm-hmm. York a couple of years ago, um, and we were just at the FTC hearings this week. So. And we think our third job for the consumer is transparency. Like, I think we pride ourselves on not just providing a trusted experience, an experience that gives access when you want it. We also pride ourselves on sort of being transparent about what we do. And so, you know, whether that's in the UK, where we work with the CMA, or, you know, here at FCC hearings, I think, you know, we feel pretty secure that as long as we stay true to the fan, we'll be in a good place.
1: Just to follow up on that, should state and federal laws regulating uh-huh. the market, ticketing? should they be? Stronger, weaker, the same? What do you think?
2: You know, mostly what I think even with regard to ticketing is what I said earlier with regard to the uh, open market. So um, fortunately or unfortunately, not every actor um, has the same ethos towards ticketing as we do. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think you find in many states there's monitoring, if not regulation. And I would say, generally speaking, I'm in fan of anything that gives consumers protection. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and consumer transparency. So if you say, is there a role for um, uh, consumer advocacy groups to play, or you know, regulators around consumer advocacy? For sure. Number two, um, are there issues of potential, you know, uh, anti-competitive behavior even in our industry? Yes. You know, are we a fan of seeing those monitored and addressed? Yes. Um, so I think from both perspectives, I would, you know, am I looking to wake up and be regulated? No. Do we work pretty actively in every state uh, with regulators? The answer is yes, hmm. and sometimes proactively uh, to make sure that the customer interest is stewarded.
1: What other things are you looking to do for customers? Do you have something called Ticket Forward? Yeah, we're going to talk about it. Program. You got it. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. asking, nice. Andy. T- Bingo. Yeah, yeah. um,
2: and there we go. So look, I think as we chat about that journey at StubHub. Um, you know, if if the first year was about kind of ensuring international growth, stabilizing kind of and uh, optimizing the core business, think about the leadership team, and sort of reinvigorating the culture. When you think forward to what we have always represented for the fans, it is always sort of both the fan-first mentality and being sort of the first in our industry to do the things that are right for fans. So, so what do we have coming next? Uh, number one, on the social purpose side, uh, we are launching Ticket Forward, or have launched Ticket Forward, uh, which is our global social good program where anybody can give the joy of life. Uh, So this started in our own organization. We are like, wow, how do we feel the brand every day? And you and I both know that we live in a virtuous cycle where sometimes it's great to receive, sometimes it's great to give. Um, And giving something like a live experience is a pretty special thing. Uh, So we started a program internally where we allow employees to nominate, took off. Uh, Then we partnered with Make-A-Wish globally, because when you think about being able to gift tickets to people in need or people who are inspired... Uh, What better organization than someone like Make-A-Wish that helps us do it publicly? And today we're announcing Ticket Forward globally, which has not only those two components, but the third component, which is opening up this virtuous cycle to our fans. So allowing our fans, partner organizations, the teams we work with, all to be able to nominate uh, great people for their communities to be gifted a live experience. Uh, So it sort of takes that virtuous cycle um, that we live inside of StubHub and takes it outside of our four walls and allows our fans to join that experience, which we're pretty excited about. And partner orgs, like I said, including Make-A-Wish. The second thing comes to sort of uh, that other piece. If we're going to be first for fans, it's not just on things like uh, social purpose, great. Of course, they would look to us for that. Um, But when you think about the fan experience, you know, we were the first to provide a fan protect guarantee. We were the first to provide mobile ticket access along all of baseball. We were the first to provide 3D maps. Well, I think the other first for us is really going to a full-fledged loyalty pl- program, the first tranche of which is launching for our top-tier customers, called StubHub Beyond, uh, which really packages up an experience for, for fans that they expect from StubHub already into uh, unique services that we provide for our top customers that really shows that kind of going to an experience through StubHub is far more than a ticket. So it includes premium concierge service, early access to events, um, kind of a first in the industry is refund protection, uh, for our top buyers to be able to actually refund a ticket, which doesn't exist in our industry today. Um, so the announcement of StubHub Beyond is sort of uh, one step uh, forward in our kind of desire to be first for our fans.
1: Sounds like a lot of work there. Um, I do want to shift gears, though, and ask sure. you a little bit about your background and sure. some of these other places that you've worked. So you grew up in Tanzania, or were born there, at least. Born in Tanzania, And so yeah. how did you get from there to where you are today? I mean, I know it's a whole...
2: Yeah, Long, convoluted story. Right. But, but, but in the other cliff words,
1: notes. So are there, there are ways for people to be born in a place like that and mm-hmm. get to where you are today? Yeah. And how does that happen? Just yeah, it's a generally. Good,
2: yeah, it's a good question. Um so I was born in Tanzania to two doctors, two Indian doctors. My parents were both ran a medical practice together there and immigrated to Canada when I was two. And then ran a medical practice together in Canada for 20, 30 years. So first of all, like if you think of the through line, well, one clear through line, and I think research uh, supports the same, is um, often entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people are um, experience entrepreneurship in their family, mm-hmm. and although my parents are doctors, and you don't think of that as sort of entrepreneurs. My father loved running a small business. Let me say that he loved it; like he just loved it. So by the time I was so seven the or billing, eight, all, the other all of that. By the time I was seven or eight, <laughs> I was literally doing his ledger for his taxes. Um, by the time I was probably eleven or twelve, I probably knew how to do his tax returns. My first uh, job was in his office, and he always told me uh, to work for myself. The other kind of funny story about my dad is besides loving entrepreneurship generally and run, loving running a small business, he actually loved technology. And so long before I ever knew anything about this industry, I distinctly remember, which I tell, tell people, he was probably uh, 15 or 16. And my dad would call his broker. You remember the days when you'd call your broker to trade stocks? My dad loved to trade stocks. And he'd call up his broker, and you know, he'd and, and like his eyesight was going because he was older, and he had this magnifying glass, and he was looking at the paper, and he'd call his broker every day to talk stocks, and he'd be like, Dad, and he'd, he'd be like, Tom, let's buy some of this company AOL. Like, we're in the yeah. AOL building right now, like 30 years later. I didn't even know what AOL was. And here's this sort of older doctor, like he spends all the day treating people loves stocks, loves Wall Street, loves innovation, has discovered this company called AOL and is buying stock, and I'm listening. Um, And so you say, like, what's the gap from there to here? Well, I think I had a lot of exposure to entrepreneurship. Uh, Obviously, I had the benefit of a very secure financial, you know, uh, environment, which allowed me to take risks, you know, and and I don't think we want to underestimate the the power of that. Um, And I would say from kind of my very first job, uh, no surprise, was on Wall Street. My dad was like, hey, go down to New York and interview and try to get a job at that place called Merrill Lynch. And I did. Um, and so, and by the time I was in my 20s, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. By the time I was in my 30s, I was an entrepreneur in tech. And I think you could trace it all back to that origin story.
1: So you've worked for these big companies, like you work for eBay now, you've worked at Google a little bit, you worked at Amazon, yep. you've started up companies, you've worked at startups. Yep. So what is the common denominator, Sukinder, across those that allows you to succeed?
2: Uh, I think there are probably two things. And by the way, I haven't always succeeded. There's been lots of failure and there are lots of things that didn't work out, right? But let's call it progress. (laughs) progress. Right. <laughs> progress over a long period of time, even if not in every single case. Um, I think that maybe the two through lines for me are, uh, number one, always been building. Even when I was at Google, I was, you know, I was building first local and maps, and then I built the international business. Um, so there's never been a time I've been at, at, at Amazon, I was in the first iteration of Marketplace, which was through an acquisition of a company called Jungly that I was at. So I've never not been a builder. And I, I don't think, I think there very few times Startup may be the rare exception where I inherited something at scale already and then trying to take it to its next chapter of growth, but always a builder. Uh, number two, I think the other thing that's allowed me uh, to succeed is, and I look for it in the people I hire, whether they're junior, whether they're senior, which is I've always had what I call operating range, which is, you know, I can see, I, I can see where we need to go and I can put myself at 30,000 feet and then I can roll up my sleeves and be like, okay, well, what needs to happen today? And then I can get into the weeds and be like, mm, uh, actually, if we want to start a company, we need to go get some office space and I need to hire, you know, I need to get, hire a lawyer and do it cheap. Um, so I think throughout my career, whether big or small, I've always been somebody who likes to go up, go down, get into the details, go back up. And kind of I look for people that can move pretty seamlessly between vision and execution. Um, and so I think I've been lucky that that's something I've gotten to do.
1: How long do you want to keep doing this? I mean, do you ever think about it? Like, why do you do this? What are, you, what are you getting out of this?
2: Um, well, don't we all hope we're getting impact? Why are you doing this? Same thing. Impact, right? right. I mean, I think that, uh, well, first of all, I guess I uniquely believe that if I want to have impact in the world, I don't need to, I mean, I have the board list on these things, but I didn't do the board list, you know, because I was... Searching for impact, I feel like I have impact every day in my day job. If I can create something that's an experience that millions of people love, and if I can create a place where people's careers are accelerated and people experience satisfaction and success, I feel like as a leader, that's also part of impact. Um, so at this stage, I'm just doing it for impact. And as we talked about, uh, I'd rather be impactful in areas that I'm passionate about or enjoy personally as a consumer. And StubHub fits that bill.
1: Do you think about? Um how you are influencing the world or influencing younger people or influencing the world around you in terms of the people who work for you?
2: Um, I don't spend every day thinking about it. I mean, people tell me that and it's gratifying. And obviously, I intrinsically believe that or at this stage of my career, I would not be spending my time doing the things I'm doing. Um, Do I actively think about it? No. Do I feel... uh, I sort of, I go through my day every day trying to do those things. Um,
1: how do you want to use your influence then?
2: Yeah, I guess that's probably, I mean, I think when people say you have influence, I'm like, uh, I think you wake up every day and try, and I think you try and do your best work. And at some point when you add all that up over a very long period working, you naturally <laughs> maybe get to some influence. Um, how do I think about using my influence? I think mostly right now, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't need money to have influence. I think I just feel like my influence is like, look, can you help people see possibility and realize it? Like, and I think if I can do that in every aspect of my life, at the board list, with my children, you know, I want them to think that anything's possible and they can go get it. For women, at StubHub, for our fans, I just kind of, I feel like right now, impact for me equals like, an influence is like, do you see the world as a place where anything's possible and can you help accelerate possibility for other people? And I'm like, I feel like if I can do that, I'm good.
1: I think the thing about Sekinder to learn from her is just seeing the energy and the passion. I mean, she is 100% on it all the time and thinking and just so open about learning and thinking about ways to use technology and knowing that all these things are evolving and changing and then she has to keep up and then even more than that, drive it and get ahead of it. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter, at Yahoo Finance and at Surwork.